Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Music. Music. Horror. Horror. Subculture. And overall bad Welcome, Welcome to Kettle, to Kettle Whistle, Whistle, Whistle Radio. Radio. With your hosts, your host, Dave, Dave and Sean. And Sean. Hello and happy Halloween, folks. Hope you guys are having a, a good October right now. Um, got a good show. Man, Dandy Brown, a.k.a. Stephen Brown, the author. Dandy Brown, the musician you guys have met many times on here before. Great music. Great musician. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his new book, Carnival Songs. Wow. Yeah, it's spicy. That's all I'm going to say very spicy we're going a little we're going to take a left turn from horror to bring you horror americana a real thing yeah um so you're gonna meet stephen brown formerly known as dandy brown hey coming up willow station if you're in the pittsburgh area if you're by willow station and castle shannon okay october 30th i'll be there with my artist Robert J. Hoagland, and Jess Weary, musician, who is also our muse for Dr. Peeler, Demon Psychologist. Did I say psychologist? <laughs> That's deep-rooted. Psychiatrist. Yeah. But you want to come, if you love horror art, this guy, man, what he has composed and what he's going to have there at that at the Willow Station. Yes, it is a bar. So, you, yes, yeah, you can drink. All right. And there's really good food. And uh, yeah, so that's next uh, yeah, next Saturday, the 30th. Robert J. Hoagland with his art. Talking physical stuff, kids. Rarity these days. And Jess Weary may or may not be playing guitar. I'm not sure yet. We're going to be talking, but you, you can meet her. And she's also an incredible artist herself. Now, October 26th, this Tuesday, coming up sooner. Heather Taddy, Paranormal State of Affairs. Okay, that's in Newcastle, October 26th. Okay, with um, it's Heather Taddy and... Cindy Willoughby, and they will be at do, 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 at Hillview Manor, 2801 Elwood Road, Newcastle, PA, 16101, 
It's a speaking engagement. And again, Paranormal Talk. Check it out. And uh, let's see, what else do I have to tell you? Oh, coming up right now. This is so cool. Uh, Gwen from Frail hit me up and sent us a their new release. And by now, you've probably heard it. We're always so delayed with so much. We're inundated with stuff right now. But yeah, man, you're about to hear Bella Lugosi's Dead by Frail. Enjoy and definitely enjoy this. And check out freaking Stephen Brown's book. I'm telling you, man. But don't buy it for someone that's squeamish or on the fence about social issues. <laughs> or maybe you actually should. All right. Enjoy.
friends and fiends. We got a repeat performer here. One of our favorites from, uh, it's only been a year. However, he's been, we played his music for uh, years prior to that. Um, we're still not sure if we're calling you Dandy Brown or Stephen Brown. Yeah, either either one works, man. You know, oh, okay, well. I, I'm a person of many monikers sometimes. So Dandy Brown, the musician, Stephen Brown, the author. And boy, is he blowing this thing up. Read the first review. Holy smokes, it's the kind of review you revere or really, really want. But dude, I and I say dude with the utmost respect, but dude, are you trying to get us tossed off iHeartRadio from the onset? <laughs> <laughs> well, man, first of all, congratulations on uh, getting connected with iHeartRadio. That's a, that's a really tremendous uh, accomplishment. And... Uh, you know, you guys have always done such a quality program. It's I a, appreciate all that. I can say, all I can say is about time, you know? Hey, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, and Sean's taken many a beating for a couple of years now. And yeah, <laughs> I've been plugging away for like, you know, a good 13, 14 years at this. So yes, iHeartRadio fans, welcome. And welcome to Kettle Whistle Radio. You are now one of our fiends, officially. But I've got to say, Dandy Brown, Stephen Brown, yeah. you are the yeah. most unassuming villain with an amazing writing ability and a wordsmith at that. But dude, carnival songs. I'm going to introduce a new genre right now, and I'm going to call it horror Americana. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I'll take it, man. You know, it, um, it was a book I, I really uh, struggled over whether or not to put out there. You know, I um, I'd written that thing uh, in its first version close, close to about 30 years ago. You know, my... Wow. My dream when I uh, when I left college was to go off and become you know world famous author like uh, like my heroes you know many of those expats that moved to Paris so I tried to follow in those footsteps and uh, took a manuscript over with me I moved to Paris and worked and worked and worked on it and got to the end of the day and and I reread it and just didn't like it <laughs> I just didn't like it at all. And so I started on another one and got to the end of that one and same feeling, you know, it just didn't seem to, it didn't seem to reach the, the goals I had for it. You know, it, to me, it paled in comparison to, to my heroes. So I just kind of stuck those things along with a bunch of short stories that I'd had published when I was younger into a, into an ice chest and put them away. And it was right about that time that music started taking off a little bit and got a, got a, a demo deal with Capitol Records, gave me enough money to open a recording studio, and things just sort of moved along with the music, and I uh, eventually got involved with teaching high school for about 20 years and having a family, and I just never really had time to come back to the uh, to the books, but um, after, after a failed marriage and the end of my career, um, uh, decided it was time to move on from teaching. Um, I came up north, uh, Northern California, and um, uh, my wife, Dawn, uh, was going to school there, and uh, I decided to get into grad school. I'd always wanted to, to get that master's degree, but I just never had time to do so, and, and once I launched into the program, I uh, just wondered what I was going to do for my thesis, and so I started digging through that ice chest and dug out both of those novels and just decided to rewrite one completely and turned out I chose carnival songs out of the two. And as I started to work with my mentors at the college, they, they greatly cautioned against me putting that book out. They, uh, 
they really felt as though there would be some some backlash um, <laughs> for for the story itself and the way the story is set up. Uh, but as I kept working on it, then their attitude completely changed and they started to push me to publish it. And by the time I got done with the masters, they were they were really encouraging. They were like, you've got to try to put this out because, you know, they just felt it was a important message about attitudes in the Midwest and uh, that are still clinging there today. Uh, and, time, I say timing is everything right now. Yeah. And I just sort of, um, you know, I, I struggled, you know, because I I really didn't want to get on the radar for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was just kind of a, afraid of some of the backlash that was going to come. And um, eventually I just heeded their advice. You know, I, I sent out 30 query letters, not thinking anything of it. Got 20, 20 plus rejections. <laughs> and and um, uh, my wife and I we were on vacation in Ohio. Actually, we were doing some shows there last summer. Just got and, back from Ohio last night myself. Yeah, yeah. So we were just driving down the road and uh, saw an email pop into my inbox, and I asked her to read it to me. And she read through it, and she was quiet for a long time. And I, I asked her, I said, you know, are you just trying to figure out how to break the bad news to me, another rejection? <laughs> And she was like, no, you know, this this uh, um, this publishing company wants your book. And I just pulled off on the side of the road just feeling so, you know, validated for for all the time I put into it. And, um, you know, at that point, I'd let go of my qualms. I was like, this is an important message. You know, this is a, this is an important uh, um, uh, an important message about uh, things I grew up with things I see that are, are still prevalent in the Midwest, mm. attitudes that, um, mm. I don't know, that maybe it's time to confront them and to, uh, to I don't know, try to, try to change things a little bit. Yeah, I, I dived pretty deep. I dove pretty deep into the book, and I, I really, my God, um, I'll get into that in a little bit. Now, your, your, your lovely wife, Dawn, she's been on these airwaves. We had you on it, like you said, a year ago, uh, the Fizz Fuzz, correct? Uh, yeah. It's been a year? It has. It's been a little over a year. We uh, we put out uh, that album, Palmyra, yeah. um, uh, about a year ago, right? A week before um, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had um, tour plans for the U.S., tour, tour plans for Europe. I mean, everything just sort of got caved in uh, mm -hmm. with the virus. Um, and so we had to put a lot of things on hold for for about a year and then eventually we started rebooking shows again but you know as everyone as every musician knows i mean it just was a it was a strange year you know oh, there was no live no yeah. live music to play and and a lot of people doing a lot of living room performances and <laughs> yeah you know, we did we dabbled in that a little bit but um we actually just took the time to to work on you know other pieces of art me with the book and and dawn uh a lot of photography and a lot of painting and you know, as I'm sure you know, she's a tremendous, tremendously talented painter and tremendously talented photographer and uh, just gave us time to work on those uh, aspects of our art. And that you, you actually stole one of my questions there because I was really, really curious to see what she had to say about this. There's a lot to say. Uh, was she critical? Was there, was there like, this is good, but... Uh, you know, I, I, Dawn is, is my uh, biggest supporter my partner, my biggest fan, you know, I couldn't be more lucky to have, uh, someone that, that not only supports me, but I can create with. And, um, it's just a marriage made in heaven, man. Nice. I mean, I, um, I've never been in a relationship where I actually had a partner, 
um, that I I could do things and create things with. And uh, I'm just truly, truly lucky. And, you know, she's she's very supportive of the book. You know, of course, she had uh, the same qualms that I had, the same qualms <laughs> that uh, my professors had. And I I think when people read the book, you know, it's um, it's it's striking in many ways. I mean, when you're writing about uh, when you're writing about uh, uh, the KKK and you're writing about uh, uh, racist attitudes in the Midwest and misogyny and and things that are really deeply ingrained and have been ingrained mm-hmm. in that area since since the founding of the United States, you know, and yes. still are prevalent there to this day. Um, I think, you know, of course, anyone would have qualms, you know, neither of us want to be, neither of us want to be in the news for all the bad reasons, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, but I just felt it was important to bring the story to light and, you know, there's semi true aspects of it. Uh, uh, the, the, um, inspiration behind the book, uh, came from when I was, um, at the tail end of my college career, my undergrad degree, when I was in my twenties, I had heard a story um, about a uh, African American man that was beaten to death in a city just west of Cincinnati, mm. and I spent the last semester of my of my undergrad um, of my undergrad semester um, going out there and spending weekends every weekend taking notes and asking people about this story and. Um, I couldn't find any official documentation. It had been so buried, but wow. it seemed that everyone in that town knew about it. And uh, I started spending some time in the nightclubs at night, and I just ha- happened to um, uh, end up in a club where uh, the regional KKK was uh, having their meetings. And I just sat and listened and didn't give away my cover and uh, listened to what they had to say, went back to my hotel room at night, made crapload of notes um, that uh, ended up being the foundation behind the book. Um, So, uh, again, you know, I have a lot of kin and I have a lot of friends in that area. Mm -hmm. And um, I certainly don't want to offend anybody, but uh, um, subconsciously, I think a lot of people from there still carry those attitudes, even though they may say they're the least racist person or the least misogynistic person. Uh, these type of types of archetypal um, concepts get embedded into our psychology, and um, you know, uh, this is what this is what critical race theory is about. And unfortunately, um, you know, people want to shy from the truth or shy right. from from the history, the real history um, of our nation. And yes. it's unfortunate, you know, because to heal, you have to first, you know, uh, reach some point of admission of the wrongs that have been done to people. And how we still carry those attitudes within us, you know. Um, I'm not afraid to to say that I was brought up with those attitudes. That uh, until I reached my late teens, early twenties, um, it was hard for me to view the world in any other way. Now, thank goodness, I had an opportunity to travel and meet a whole bunch of different people from many different cultures and many different places and many different countries uh, that enabled me to overcome many of those attitudes that I carried from my childhood. Mm -hmm. But to say that I will ever be completely over them or that they aren't still residing in my subconscious somewhere, well, that would be, that would be untrue. And, uh, I think every day, um, I have to struggle with those things because they are so deeply embedded into me. And I think they're embedded into everyone that grew up in that area. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, if you're offended by the truth, uh, honestly, you can press a button, turn a knob, lower the volume, change the channel, and hide behind your own veil of ignorance. And that's the way I look at that. Um, I, I got to ask you, all writers like to go back home and destroy it. Um, is this your personal vengeance at home? Are you going back home again and saying, this is how I feel? Or is most of this fiction? Well, I would say that I would say that probably 50% of it is real, 50% of it is fiction. Um, I grew up in a very political family, so <clears throat> um, uh, my father was a county auditor, never lost an election till his very last one. And um, so I saw how politics can tear uh, a man and a family apart. And uh, so that became a great deal of the fodder that I used for mm. the main character, Ryan Driggs, and the and the story. Um, am I out to destroy people? No, absolutely not. You know, I like I say, I have many friends and many kin that live in that area, and I I love them all dearly. Um, but um, I what, do believe what I, I don't mean destroyed, but like uh, metaphysically, like uh, you know that memory, that bad memory. Let's let's exploit <laughs> it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more not trying to destroy it, but just simply try to come to terms with it and yeah. confront it and to be able to reach some some truth and admissions within myself that uh, I think are important to grow as a person and to uh, just be a better human being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one's perfect. I'll never be perfect. Um, and those things will reside within my sub psyche probably till the day I die. <clears throat> but if I can... If I can make a statement through a novel, if I can uh, put people, uh, put a mirror in front of people and have them think about those things, then, you know, that's always the first step. And maybe someday, years and years, decades from now, maybe we as a culture can reach that point of healing and understanding. But I, I certainly don't think that we're there now. No, I agree. Um, yeah, this is such a subtle, like, or not so subtle approach at getting folks to read real horror. Fool, not fooling so much, but letting them see the truth behind the curtain. Um, somehow, like, my friend, there, there's a beauty in your storytelling as a wordsmith, and you really are. Um, amazing. Um, but even as you're creating, like, this perpetual pyramid scheme of, like, infamy did you plan on this like was somebody like so subtly falling like that we're gonna i'm gonna take an excerpt from that uh woman that did the review earlier like uh she thought she was reading a love story and then boom and then boom 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 chapter after chapter it's like you're going deeper and deeper into this it's a horror story man and it's real yeah well i think you know <clears throat> it to call it a love story would be kind of maybe a a bit of a stretch because you know the the two main characters that are married mm -hmm. are most certainly not i don't know if i could say that they're actually in love with each other you know one of the uh, one of the one of the main things that my mentors at uh, sonoma state pointed out to me was that um, there is no character in that book that is likable um, and mm. I was like, yeah, right on. You got it. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> there is no character that's likable. You know, that that was my goal to begin with, that that there are deep seated things within the human psyche or within humanity that are that are totally unlikable. And I really wanted to expose those things. You know, a wife who is is having a, a, affairs on her husband. She's only been married to for a few years. Uh, this fellow who is also flirting with the secretary, you know, there's that whole undercurrent <laughs> Alice. Uh, oh, romance Alice. between them. Yep. Um, 
And then to just flip it on his head and to have her uh, in the type of affair that she's in uh, with someone who who uh, promotes the word of God, you know, and says that they are speaking the word of God from a religious canon, and yet they don't live up to it at all. I mean, that is so, so human, so, so such a statement to our, our fallacies, you know. And um, again, this is just the mirror I was trying to hold up when I wrote the book. And, and you know, I'm satisfied. I, I feel as though in a lot of ways the book is not completely a perfect text, but I think I've achieved what I wanted to achieve through it. Yeah, this ain't Mayberry, a.k.a. Carnival Songs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me tell you, um, I, I I should ask you to give a brief synopsis to folks that um, might be enticed. I mean, we've been teasing all kinds of craziness right now, but real horrific. Uh, is this historical fiction to you? To me, it is, because like I said, about 50% of it is 100% accurate, you know, yeah. 50%, 100%, right? Um, 50% of the book is, is based on real events. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that aspect, it is historical fiction. Um, I guess that this is a total definition of what historical fiction is. Yeah. Are you the narrator? I am not. Mm-hmm. I am not the narrator. Um, that was another another thing that uh, uh, St- uh, Stefan Kiesby, a uh, great, great author and one of my mentors at the college, uh, he brought up that point. He's like, um, people are going to start thinking that you're the narrator of this. And <laughs> yes, yes. They're going to wonder if you're, uh, if you're a racist <laughs> oh, and boy, if, you, oh, boy. if you are promoting these racist attitudes. And um, most certainly I'm not the narrator, even though there's aspects of any author in every character. Um but again, to go back to my own admissions, these are things that that I'm trying to exercise through the novel uh, from my own subconscious. Things that I know that I carried as a as a much younger person, and things that I know that are still in there today. Um, that uh, certainly I don't identify with, and that's not my personality or the things that I promote. But uh, to deny that they are in one psyche, uh, you know, I'm I'm a beneficiary of uh, white privilege, man. I mean, uh, there's no two ways about it. You know, I'm a, a beneficiary of nepotism. You know, my father being a uh, auditor for the county. And wow, that's like your main your main character, Ryan. <laughs> right. It provides me with uh, all kinds of jobs that I had growing up that I in no way, shape or form deserved or had Mm. the qualifications to do but you know um this is part of politics still to this day you know when a family member gets into office they often find a way to finagle jobs for their relatives and and i most certainly was a beneficiary of that now was i more of a beneficiary of that than african-american folks that lived in uh the city close to where i grew up with or grew up up, uh, close to most certainly most certainly i was And to deny that would be to deny the truth. And I think the more we face the truth, no matter what the consequences are or may be for just our feelings about ourselves, it's the only way to grow. Growth isn't always about something that comes easy. Growth is often about something that comes really hard and facing the demons within yourself and not being afraid to, to put them out there. And to help other people see that, you know, I have the same demons as you, you know, let's, let's try to heal this. You, you don't want, you don't want mine. You don't want mine. 
Just saying. <laughs> I've got yours, man. We've all <laughs> that's part of the archetype, you know. <laughs> We've all got each other's demons. And um for all the years that I <clears throat> for all the years that I taught high school, one of my main themes in class was Oh yeah, I'm sorry, look, you do have your own demons. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. To to look at to look at the foundations of literature and to look at where these archetypes come from and to see that those characters throughout literary history are all the same. You know, mm-hmm. they're just manipulated into different environments and different eras. But the more we look at the foundations of humanity and the foundations of literature, the more we're able to see not the things that divide us, but the things that bring us together. And, um, you know, this is how I tried to to teach for 20 years. And I think for the most part, I was successful with it. I can't see how you weren't. Um, but let's talk about Torrenceburg, okay, <laughs> a.k.a. Uh, Lawrenceburg. Well, you know, I certainly... Where the Seagram's plant is along the yeah, Ohio River, yeah. Anybody that uh, uh, looks at the name Torrenceburg and uh, certainly uh, looks at the setting of the novel is going to know that uh-huh. it is based out of Lawrenceburg. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to definitely promote the fictional aspects uh, within the novel by changing the name of the city. And uh, certainly a lot of the layout uh, of the city uh, appears in the novel, but it's not 100 uh, percent a blueprint. Of course. Of no, I totally story. understand. Yeah. I didn't mean to out you there if you want me to. <laughs> no, no, not at all, man. I mean, I think it's more than obvious. And, you know, I don't want to uh, not that I visit Lawrenceburg often, right. but certainly if I pass through there, um, I, I don't want to target on my back. But now there is one, David. So thanks. Man. Oh, so no, true. I can always with the art of edit, <laughs> editing, I can take care of that. Uh, but, yeah, there is that Seagram's plant there along the Ohio River. And it's my God, it's so vivid for uh, folks like me and Sean. We live here and we we've driven through the area. I mean, and I've been to Indiana many, many times for horror conventions, you name it. Uh, yeah, not a big surprise to me. But yeah, of course, you've you made your own modifications. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, my father, uh, as I was saying, after he um, uh, after he had lost that last election, the only election ever, he ever lost, he ended up uh, in his second career as, you know, uh, retired guy. He ended up uh, uh, dealing blackjack on one of the riverboats out there. Hmm. I think it had always been a dream of his and uh, to be in that setting. Uh, not that he was a huge gambler, but I just think it was he romanced it and he went out and did it. And um, uh, it, it just gave me some more insight into how the riverboats came into Lawrenceburg and the impact they had on that little city. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime somebody comes along and tells your local government, hey, we're going to bring in, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars into your local economy, um, that dramatically changes everything about your city. Some to the good, some to the bad. Well, I don't want to, again, before we take a quick break here, um, a brief synopsis of the book would be great because I don't know how to, there's so much. I mean, you yeah. have, uh, you created, I, I don't want to compare it to Derry in Stephen King's novel, It, uh, because this seems so real and we know like you said a lot of it is still happening and um can you give a brief synopsis of this uh, i don't know without offending too many people (laughs) well you know uh, um it is a story of um of a founding family 
in that area and the the impact that they have on the growth of that city from from its inception uh, in the early 1800s. And uh, of course, it is told from the perspective of the last in the line of this family uh, who reaches these realizations about his family um, and about himself that are are really difficult for him to come to grips with. And when he does reach these these realizations, um, he has to deal with them in order to to go forward because, he as well is uh, he as well is a beneficiary of nepotism mm. and of white privilege in quotation marks because I can't give away that part of the novel. Of course not. But yeah. uh, there's certainly a realization in there that is very important to the to the story. Yes, um, absolutely. I, I don't want to reveal too much because there's so much. There's just so much, and every page, I, like one, I should say, one paragraph to the next. There was so much reveal, <laughs> and it's over, it's it's overwhelming, really. But yes, okay, we're talking about carnival songs here. We've got Stephen Brown, aka Dandy Brown, if you're a musician and love his music. And uh, Sean, I'm, I think you might want to. You got something for him right now. On the yeah, yeah. I, I had a question about the book actually. Um, I, I wanted to, and I think you guys hinted on this earlier. It with your characters. I know what you said earlier about them um, not being likable, but is there any redeeming qualities to the characters? Mm. And and just another question: um, How much effort do you put into uh, the naming of your characters? Like how you know how how easy is that, or is that just sort of happenstance that you just fall into a name? Well, uh, as far as redeeming qualities, I mean they are. They are human beings, and they they definitely have the full gamut of emotions. And I think all of the emotions that they do have are are and the actions that they take are things that we've all been guilty of to some degree along the path. So um, uh, along the path of life. Uh, so redeeming in the fact that they are us, and maybe somewhat the darker side of us, but they are us because we all have those darker elements within us. Um, I think Connie Driggs, uh, Ryan's wife, uh, certainly follows her passions. And I think there's something redeeming about her passions that she does follow. For Ryan, uh, certainly his work ethic and his, um, his desire to, to improve the city, to follow in the family name. I mean, those are, those are not terrible qualities. Um, how he gets there, maybe that's a different story. Um, there is no redeeming quality for Beanie. Uh, there, uh, Bean, the Beanie Vietnam is the, vet. yeah, the Vietnam, uh, he was blinded uh, in Vietnam. And, yeah, yeah and he's there's absolutely no redeeming quality for right. him. And I set it up that way. But, you know, I also tried to satirize him a little bit. And you really um, did. Yeah. With his bar flies sitting there and just basically yeah. ripping on everybody that comes in or retelling stories they've told a million times about how they did get injured in vietnam mm -hmm. but which is very yeah. serious you see where they're coming from too you, you empathize Indeed. with them yeah yeah i really tried to humanize those characters uh but through showing the darkest elements of their attitude i again tried to make their stories almost sound funny but funny in such a dark awful way yeah that 
you know, I, I was really trying to twist uh, the reader up a little bit with those characters. You know, do I do I like them? Do I hate them? You know, I hate <laughs> them for what they say, but the way they deliver it and yes. the almost comical aspects of them almost makes it hard to hate them. Right. The conversational tone while they're at the bar. I mean, even when the beanie actually falls and passes, uh, falls off his stool, but he doesn't finish his story and they keep saying, can you please finish the story? And he's like, where did I leave off? Where did I leave off? It was a very real bar situation about with these guys just reiterating stories they've heard before, except this one they didn't hear and they're annoyed that he can't finish the story because okay. he, he falls off the stool. And But yeah, very yeah. real, very real conversational tone. You learn the characters through conversational tone. Well, that, uh, that's, uh, <clears throat> that story, um, uh, the one he tells about the other Vietnam vet that moves to yeah. Texas. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's, that is a real story that I heard when I was sitting in that club taking mm. notes. Wow. Um, uh, coming from someone that wasn't blind, Robert. but they were telling this story about this blind guy. Was it Robert? Um, Robert, right? Yeah, Robert. that ends up in, yeah. ends up in uh, uh, Urgency, Texas. Um, and I'm not going to give away that part of the story either. Mm. Uh, hopefully people will read it. But uh, the, the scam that is pulled on him in Urgency, Texas, again, I, I don't think that that story is a real story. But it was part of that folklore from that city and from that nightclub where the KKK was having their regional meetings. And I think it was mainly told for recruitment pur uh, purposes. And um, as many of the stories that I heard in there that I wouldn't put any stock in them being real, but certainly for propaganda, they had a way of reeling people in with them. Indeed. Well, we're going to play Shame right now, and I feel it's very fitting. <laughs> did, okay. Yeah, did you pick that one on purpose? <laughs> I, I, I I did not. I just, uh, it really? seems like we get a couple of them off of that record played so much uh, by so many folks, and uh, uh, it seems like Shame, and it's one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, Explain the record uh, real quick. Yeah, just trying to give it a little love. Uh, and Shame, uh, the Fizz Fuzz, correct? That's correct. All right, and that's off of, uh, that was Palmyra from, wow, a year ago? Yeah, a little over a year ago. Good stuff, good stuff. All right, let's hear Shame. We'll get, it, get right back here. Stephen Brown, Danny Brown, for all you guys that love, and girls that love his music. And uh, we're talking carnival songs. And thanks for listening to Kettle Whistle Radio.
Visit www.fairlydarkproductions.com for more info on the author and his work. I'm Heather Taddy, and you're listening to Kettle Whistle Radio. June 19th sees the release of I Was a Teenage Werewolf, featuring Michael Landon. Not one week later, June 25th, sees the release of The Curse of Frankenstein, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Hammer Studios, the opening salvo of the monster craze. But the real beginning is four months later. That October, the crypt comes open when Screen Gems' shock package a collection of 52 universal horror films, is released to TV. Neglected and forgotten, the monsters had returned. Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, all the familiar icons. The Invisible Man, the Wolfman, and then many of the progressively worsening sequels. Dracula's daughter, son of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, broadcast everywhere, across the country, over and over again. In Los Angeles, it would be KTLA 5, the best of the local stations that would broadcast the shock package. From the Mount Wilson Towers atop the San Gabriel Mountains, invisible beams sent monsters flying into the city. The craze exploded. You had to watch monsters, you had to be monsters. If it was monsters, it was good. No matter the quality, you take what you could get. It was monsters. Product everywhere, meticulously crafted but prohibitively expensive Don Post monster masks available only through mail order or from secretive, mysterious locations such as the Hollywood Wax Museum, down to the chintzy Ben Cooper Halloween costumes, Roger Corman's adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price, situation comedies, novels, Aurora Monster model kits, Famous Monsters magazine, an endless efflorescence of monster-related goods, a lumbering creature bursting through the door. And you wanted it all, because the monster wasn't a stranger, he was a welcome friend. Even in the 1960s, the 30s already seemed impossibly distant. How had we forgotten? Like the 19th-century Europeans looking back at the Gothic architecture of their ancestors, we wondered, we made that. Broadcasts beaming while dragsters roared over Huntington Boulevard, wheels spinning in the perfect circuitry of an electric L.A. HP3.com HP3 Live at Instagram and Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, etc. And we are back. We're talking carnival songs with author Stephen Brown, a.k.a. Dandy Brown. If you know his music, you've heard it here before on Kettle Whistle Radio. And thank you for listening. And uh, Captain Sexy is in the house right now, and I'm pretty sure he's going to lead off with some questions right now for Mr. Brown. 
Yeah. Hey, Dandy, uh, Sean, before, before we uh, move on to, to music, I wanted to ask you a question about um, one final question for me about the book. And it has to do with, it actually has to do with reviews, you know, being a first time novelist, I wonder once the reviews start to come in for this novel, um, they're bound to run the gamut of, you know, positive and potentially negative, you know, depending on how people feel about the content of the novel based on our discussion so far. And I wonder how do you absorb that as an artist and how do you not allow that to affect your art form going forward? Yeah. I was curious about that. Yeah, Sean. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pushing 55. I got a, my 55th birthday coming up here real soon. And I have been putting out art for, you know, close to 40 years. Wow. And yeah. I have had all kinds of reviews on all kinds of music and they haven't always been good. <laughs> and, um, certainly I think over time, um, as you, as you get older, as you, as you know more about yourself and you become more, um, confident and satisfied with yourself and where you are in life. Uh, I think those things really roll off, you know, like water off a duck, man. Um, I, you know, I, I don't really create art so much for, for anyone other than, than me, you know, um, I create it because I feel it inside of myself. I feel an urgency to, to do something, uh, to put something out there or to just do it for myself and put it up on my shelf. And so, I've just kind mm. of developed a bit of a Teflon shell when it comes to those kind of things. I, I know going into it that some people are going to like it and some people simply are not. Um, it's like me as a person. I mean, there's people that enjoy my company and I'm certain there are people that do not. And um, I just can't, I, I don't have enough time. <laughs> I don't have enough time left um, on planet earth to, uh, to really let that get inside my psyche and um, worry me too much, to tell you the truth. Good answer. I um, that's a real perfect answer. Yeah, I I don't understand why I do what I do either. I just want to entertain folks. You know, um, can't explain that. There's really no way to explain that. And Sean, good question, man. Um, but um, I I have a question here too, because uh, especially about the Connie character and the, what you said. Um, there's, nobody's likable. Um, I'm going to quote here what Connie says here. It was Ryan who became a brief focus of something greater. And then she refers to him as a sickly specimen. <laughs> That's Connie referring to her, to Ryan, her husband. Um, now, Dandy, Stephen, I've been, I've been told by females, including a female author, Lydia Peaver, whom I, who used to be on these airwaves, lovely writer, that I can write a good female character. Now, I've had very strong female presence in my life as far as people, family, friends, my wife. And I did my time with horrific bitches as well. How did you approach the Connie character, like, uh, fairly, as like an alpha female in the making or yet still subservient? Yeah, well, you know, Connie uh, certainly is carrying all the baggage of expectation. Uh, that's been placed upon her by her community and her culture. And I think that uh, her deeper sexual desires um, make her hunger for something that's very physical, very, very physical. Hmm. But I think the cultural desires tell her that she needs something that is comforting. And that comes in the form of 
of money, of, uh, of uh, assets, things that she can uh, use to support herself and know that she's not going to end up in the same place as her parents, who, of course, in the book, um, are not very wealthy and they beat each other uh, senseless because of their <clears throat> because of their financial problems. Hmm. Um, and I think that that became sort of I think Connie is, is an amalgamation of, of many different characters that I've both experienced in life and read through literature. And um, uh, you may not recognize this uh, from the text itself, uh, but uh, the whole family, the whole Driggs family in the book is also based on uh, archetypal structures mm-hmm. um, uh, that are that are biblical. Um, certainly uh, the uh, the uh, lineage of David uh, is d- directly influential upon all of the characters in the book. And and I I kind of had charted it out where each of the these characters represented uh, part of the, the lineage of David and the movement towards Joseph and then eventually uh, Christ. Um, my, my undergrad degree is in ancient literature, so uh, I was very familiar and I am very familiar with almost all canon. And so I thought that that was just a, a perfect aspect because I was raised in a very devout uh, Baptist household. And um, Oh, wait, so that, I, that brings us to the character, Nathan, the Baptist, exactly. Baptist minister. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So uh, th- those were all aspects of of characterizations from literature and from women in that area um, that I saw those qualities in. Um, that's not saying every woman is Connie. Uh, most certainly they are not. No. Uh, but I think that she carries aspects of every woman. Um, and one of the main aspects of her character is this total physical desire, this total sexual desire that she wants to um, release from within herself, but the culture is holding that desire back. And the only way that she can release this sexual desire is in secret through these affairs, well, yeah. through this affair that she's having. Oh, she's like dominated uh, with, like every man in in the town. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed she has. And, you know, that's just part of this sexual desire, which we don't really typically expect in literature from women um and one of the one of the reasons that i named her connie is because one of my favorite female characters in all of literature happens to be from lady chatterley's lover and her name happens to be connie interesting uh wow okay didn't see that coming uh and then (laughs) the, the antithesis is marilyn who lives across the way and she's a farmer's wife who um falls right into that uh, culture and she uh-huh. actually um uh, makes it a point to ask her ask connie like uh why aren't you doing anything why, why are you so happy with this lifestyle of yours you know i right. thought that was really interesting that you atta- you tackled that well you know with marilyn uh the fact is she's uh you know her description her physical description is overtly sexual but because of the expectations of the culture that have been placed upon her, she has become very cold to her husband. And um, she is out of touch with her sexuality because she is living within the parameters that the culture has put around her. Mm-hmm. And she's convinced herself that that's the way she is supposed to be. She is not supposed to be sexually dominant. She's supposed to be sexually subservient. 
And in that subservience, she has lost her desire to be sexual. Yes. Yeah. Uh, incredible. I love that interaction between the two. Um, then you have Alice uh, Boomer, Boomershine. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, who is Connie's husband, his secretary, and um, I guess uh, gained an awareness of the constant need to pacify men. I love this. I love this line. Um, uh, for Alice, the secretary of Ryan, anyway, uh, she gained the awareness of the constant need to pacify men who never really progress beyond the first few years after birth. <laughs> Dude, that is so demeaning and true. <laughs> yeah, that's a, we all know guys thing. like that. We may have been that guy. I don't know. I'm not going to talk for you guys. But we all know that guy that is torturing that female he's living with. Yeah. Yeah, and she is a she's a that whole uh, um, again that whole underlying sexual tension between uh, uh, Ryan and his secretary um, is there you know uh, is there to expose the, the the fact that perhaps Ryan and Connie never really belonged together to mm. begin with. There you go. You know, mm. yeah, because it always seems like they they they're like magnets. Magnets turn the wrong way <laughs> for oh, each other. That's great. And they sort of repel each other, whereas uh, um, whereas his secretary seems to be continually drawn to him, you know, mm. to all, all the way to the point where he's like thinking about talking to her on the phone and asking her to come and be his secretary when he becomes mayor and uh, just wanting to have her in his life and to be so uh, involved with her with her son, the baseball player. And um, right. Uh, that tension is really, really important to the novel because it offsets that relationship between Ryan and his wife, Connie. Right. And again, to reiterate, Ryan's secretary is Alice, folks. you got to read this book, man. There's so much going on, but, man, I, I can't say without ruining things. So, uh, Sean, what you got, man? Well, I, was, I was wondering, with the character development, um, do, you, do you find that when, when you're developing these characters and writing the novel that maybe a character starts as something that you envisioned would have just maybe a small part, but then they sort of grew to life and they changed the story in any way. Did, did, yeah, you, did you counter that at all? There's, there's no doubt about that, Sean. As I said, I, I wrote the first version of this novel 30 years ago. And as I, as I dug back into it, starting, you know, uh, a little over two years ago, I came back to it and, uh, really started tearing it apart and and ripping it down and you know reconstructing it. Um, uh, uh, Mousy, the uh, yeah. character that Ryan's friend, Ryan's childhood uh, friend, Mousy, yes, totally took on a whole new role and uh, ended up coming back into the novel. I mean, he wasn't even in the novel at the end in its original form, and um, his role dramatically increased. Um, so I would say yes, you know, uh, uh, when I when I came back to the novel after 30 years, you know, of it sitting without me working on it, wow. um, I was I was really surprised at um, how many really great elements were in it, but also just how terrible it was <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> Wait, do you I mean, mean terrible it, as in too real? No, it just my my voice was not, you know, my voice as a 20 year old as ah, okay. uh, opposed you. to my voice as, as a 50 plus year old person. 
uh, had developed dramatically. Um, the story in its original form was just so linear and so flat. And uh, teaching high school English for 20 years, I looked at my grammar from back then. It's just like, oh, my God, it oh, was God. so embarrassing. Yeah, ne never, uh, never read something you wrote 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just really, really embarrassing. I would look at it and just be like, did I really teach high school English? Uh -huh. uh, well, those but, you know, those you, kids can you, warp those kids can warp your writing too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It is true. That's true. But go so ahead. Uh, when you when you sit down to write a page or write a chapter or, or or just write something, what kind of atmosphere do you do you have to be in, or what what kind of mindset do you have to be in? Um, do you need total silence? Do you do you need to get away to write? Do you do you need music to be involved Can yeah, you tell well, us yeah yeah well let, let me let me start out sean by by saying that i am i'm not um i'm not a professional i'm not a professional writer i don't even know if i'll ever construct another book um this may be the harper lee you know uh, uh to kill a mockingbird one <laughs> one and done um but i do you know uh, as i was teaching high school obviously i had to write a lot i uh uh, published the um, the Union magazine. I had to write a lot of articles for that, um, and it's not quite the same type of writing, uh, of course. Um, but um, I, I think one of the reasons that uh, I stayed away from getting back into working on the novel or trying to do any kind of fiction was that it is totally absorbing, um, and that's very difficult to do when you have young children or. Uh, you're working 70-hour work weeks trying to teach high school and grade uh, enormous amount of essays. And um, uh, if you can't find the time to immerse yourself in it and really, really deeply contemplate and think about the characters and have time for rewrites and have times, you know, uh, it, it is so overwhelmingly absorbing of one's life that, uh, quite honestly, I, I really don't know if I have the energy to do it again. I'm I'm glad that I <laughs> that I finished this novel. I'm glad that it's um, it is having a, a good reception uh, from the folks that I've let read it, and people are very encouraging of it. Obviously, you know, a uh, publisher comes and picks it up, and uh, and I'm not self-publishing. I'm not having to put anything any of my money behind it. Uh, no, yeah, so that's validating. You know, that makes you feel good. That makes you feel like, hey, somebody is likes what you've done here. Um, but I am most certainly not a professional and, um, Oh, I wouldn't I say that. I, I would not be. say that. And I, again, I'm not self-published myself, but I know the difference. Um, no, you are a professional. I, I'm sorry. Reading that, uh, it, it's when you get exhausted, like reading Tolkien exhausted, um, you got a lot going on on one page. I'm just mm -hmm. saying, so no, I don't, don't that. sell yourself short. I appreciate that, but you know, I've also got uh, I got a lot of music left to to put out. Yeah, and uh, um, certainly, uh, Dawn and I are are moving in the direction of a new album, which is really going to absorb us over the next few months. Uh, we spent a lot of time writing a, a lot of new songs, and uh, we have a tour coming up in Italy next year. No and way. Um, as I say, you know, there are other a there are other avenues of art that both she and I. Um, are heavily involved in and um, and to not be able to give myself completely to something, you know, maybe maybe five years from now, I'll be like, hey, I've got that other book I worked on 30 years ago. Maybe it's time to rip it down and, 
you know, go back and try to try to clean it up too. Uh, I've got one in the bullpen, so that's uh, that's something good to have, and it's a great story too about uh, uh, drug trappers, drug traffickers in the Netherlands. Uh, I lived in the Netherlands for quite some time, and Ooh, uh, wow. uh, I got the inside dope on. Uh, how, no pun intended, but I got the inside <laughs> the inside scoop on uh, how most of that hashish trade is done throughout uh, the Netherlands, and uh, there's a really interesting story in, in that too. So. Who knows? Who knows? I'm not going to say never, but uh, I just don't know. Like I say, I've got a lot of other artistic things that I want to accomplish in this lifetime, and um, the next one's going to be the next Fizz Fuzz record. Man. Uh, yeah, Sean, do you have more uh, questions on music right now? Yeah, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, back in August, you, you did the uh, did a couple dates um, for the Fizz Fuzz mm-hmm. to, uh, to promote the album. Um, what were what were some maybe some memorable stories from that from that uh, tour and um, how did how did those shows come about were they part of the original tour that sort of got canceled as a result of the pandemic they, or did they yeah, they actually weren't um, there there was a bucket list and one uh, I have a bucket list and one of the things in that bucket list was that I had not played music in my hometown for about thirty five years. Um, the last time that I had played music in that town was with a band called the Black Republicans. And the Black Republicans were uh, Greg Dooley of Afghan Wigs and myself and um, uh, Jamie Ozias, a friend of ours there, and Dean Seiler, a friend of ours there. And um, we had played a, a couple of clubs before um, I ended up going off to Ohio University. I moved like three hours away and then a fellow named John Curley came in and suddenly the black Republicans became the Afghan Whigs and I'd lost my job in the band, but more power to him. John Curley's a great, great bass player. Um, but no, I hadn't played there in 30, 34, 35 years. And I really wanted to play my hometown again. And um, so we set up a show right there in Hamilton, Ohio, uh, where I, where I come from. And it was like a, a freaking class reunion, dude. I, I, I was, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal how many people from my graduating class turned out for that. And, um, we had just a, a absolute blast at that show and, uh, to play in downtown Cincinnati. Again, I hadn't played there in close to close to 20 years. I think the last time I played there was with Hermano in the early 2000s. And, Good stuff. Uh, Good stuff. Just to get back there and do a couple of shows and uh, to play with some phenomenal musicians. I mean, Steve Earle uh, from Afghan Wigs came in and played drum for, drums for us. Uh, Mike Reeder, a uh, guy who's like a journeyman, uh, awesome, awesome musician, played bass for us. And uh, country Mark Engel, a guy I played music with forever. He played on the Orchestra records. He played with Armando a little bit. Uh, he played on the Fizz Fuzz record. He came in and played with us. He flew in from the desert to play those shows. And the turnout was just phenomenal, uh, surprising. I mean, I, I thought we were going to play to like 15 people. Um, but the, the clubs were just, you know, jamming. And we played some really great shows and just had a really, really, really great time. And um really kind of uh i think for dawn and i really re-energized us uh to get out and play live i mean like i said we'd spent the last covid year and a half working on other pieces of art but to finally get back up on stage i 
I don't think either of us could quit smiling at each, uh, um, at each other. We just uh, we just love doing it so much, and we're really really looking forward to uh, getting over to Italy next March and and doing this handful of shows, and hopefully have a new record almost ready to put out. And then uh, next summer, um, there's there's some things that I'm not privileged to uh, to to speak about yet. But yeah, we understand very, that. Don't worry, we understand. Very interesting things on the horizon. Cool, cool. We're gonna get to see you. Uh, I'm I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. I would love to come out that way and, and do some shows. Uh, I got some friends up in uh, northern Pennsylvania that also do a festival up that way, and uh, I would love to come in that direction. Our our U.S. record label is based out of Atlanta, and so we've got some obligations to come that way and and play some shows. But I'd love to do about ten or fifteen shows and swing through, you know, northern Ohio into northern Pennsylvania and just work our way down towards Atlanta that way. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, to all the folks out there that are wondering why we're covering a book like Carnival Songs right now, yes, we cover horror. We know this, folks. But amid all this corruption, shaming, indecency, and racial violence and angst, somehow in your book you make it poignant to say there are more churches than places of business in yeah. that town of Torrenceburg. Uh, and a man was beaten to the sound of cricket bows. I mean, that mm -hmm. is horror, and yet very believable horror. Um, I, I felt it while I was reading it. Sometimes the most horrific things are not things that we make up about monsters. They're the, they're the monsters within ourselves. Big time. Big time. Big time. Um, man... I have so much more I want to ask you because, like, just like when I was reading Stephen King's It the first time, complete fiction, uh, new monster every chapter, and you, you get into Lacey Oslick, I believe her name was. That is correct. That story, my God, I don't know if you want to give them a little tease yeah. on that or no. Yeah, that is such a that's such a uh, crux point of the of the novel, and she is such an important character because she really is the character that that ties the whole novel together in a way mm -hmm. she is there almost from she's there almost from the beginning to the end um uh in in brief mentions and in the horrific event that occurs to her and the the death of the african-american man the reason that he is beaten to death um and um the actual person that committed the crime against her I mean, they're all so tied in together, mm -hmm. and the the death of uh, well, I can't say that. I can't. I don't want to get that part yeah. of the way. But yeah, don't. There's one of so the much. major deaths in the in the novel is also tied directly to her, or the, yeah, is tied directly to her. So, uh, what an enormously important character! I'm glad you point her out because yeah. I don't think people would recognize that at first. You know, they would be thinking Ryan and Connie. And Beanie mm -mm. are running through the fabric of this novel, but she is really the the foundation behind all of the action that does occur in it. Honestly, it stood out for me, uh, one writer to another. I know when you're making a point. Um, this may be the most important uh, book, yet the most horrific book for this next decade. Um, was that your intention? Did you know what you were getting into? I, I again, as I said from the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. I had very deep reservations. Yeah. Because you know, I, I, when you are, when you are quoting uh, and describing 
KKK ceremonies in a book, when you are uh, writing about a, a group of people that are intertwined within that racist attitude um, and describing the real horror about it, I think that, you know, you can really get on the radar for something like that. And, um, and again, I had real qualms about putting it out. But then, as I was saying before, I thought that the story was important enough and I started thinking about I started thinking about what kind of legacy do I want to leave behind for for my daughters, you know, Kentucky and Calliope, my, my two girls uh, who are now teenagers. And um, it really became prescient in my mind that one of the main legacies that I want to leave behind for my kids is that, you know, I've done something that perhaps made a change, even at the risk of um, of having not so positive things said about me in the end hmm. damn <laughs> can't follow that but sean can <laughs> captain captain sexy in the house no uh, no pressure I'm, captain sexy I'm, no pressure i'm gonna i'm gonna change gears again back to music i wanted to ask um you know obviously we talked about your your couple dates you had back in august but you mentioned a few times uh a tour um, next year, I believe it's in March in Italy, and I see that you'll be playing with uh, Alice Tambourine and Maniac du Jour. Um, yeah. I found I found Alice Tambourine, I think, going down a rabbit hole listening to your music, mm-hmm. um, and I became a fan of theirs. I wonder if you're a fan of theirs as well. And how did you how did you get on a tour with them? And how many dates are there going to be? There are a number of bands that I have uh, absolutely fallen in love with over the last decade. Uh, one of them is Alice Tambourine Lover. Um, Alice and Franco, they're a duo. Um, they used to be in a band called Alex. Uh, they're from uh, Bologna uh, in Italy. And um, we are, that's just kind of like a, a Facebook find, you know, um, just kind of surfing around, coming across uh, them, uh, uh, seeing some of their, you know, some of their clips on Facebook that people had posted, and they had become perhaps my favorite band in the last decade. I just think their music is phenomenal. I think Alice's voice is so unique, so so unique uh, and refreshing in a time when so many people sound just exactly alike. Hmm. This, this, these two people, Alice and Franco, have done something so unique and so beautiful that uh, I just, I'm, I don't have enough praise to heap upon them. Uh, Maniac Du Jour, um, that is a good friend of ours, Paraday, who uh, is also, they have a band out of Italy, and uh, they are just so, uh, so unique in their own right as well. Uh, very unique voice, really unique songwriting, kind of soft, not super heavy, but but uh, tremendous musicians, and um, we were just lucky to, to, to hook up with them. Alice Tambourine Lover, actually. Uh, I had written a song for one of their records. I had actually written two songs for one of their records, and uh, they, they, they put those on their record, then they asked me to guest, uh, do some guest background vocals on one of their records, nice. and we have just become incredibly great friends over the last 10 years. Um, as I was saying, that's one of my favorite bands, Alice Tam- Tambourine Lover. Uh, there's a band called uh, Church of the Crystal Skull. I don't know if you know of them. They're out of England. And I I just cannot stop listening to them over the last uh, 
uh, over the last year and a half since I came across them. Hey, um, Captain Sexy, do your research on that one, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys, you got to yep. listen to them. They are just unbelievable, unbelievable. I just, I, I love their videos. I love their music. It's, it's definitely a, a '70s kind of feel to the production on their records. They're Ooh. not overproduced. You know, that's. I like that. It's one of the things that just drives me crazy, man. Is that uh, when I hear a, when I hear a new band and it's just so compressed and it. The vocals sound just like every other vocalist, and the guitars sound like everything else. I mean, I more you know, kudos to them. They're great musicians and everything, but the production is where it's at for me. You know, if it's overproduced, I just can't. I can't deal with it. Well, so far, I mean, iHeartRadio found us. We did not solicit them, and we must nice. be doing something right by exactly what you just said. We're we're we're, we're tired of yeah, the the compressed and the. I mean, honestly, even some of our techno and industrial bands we have, they're not that compressed. It's real instruments and people really doing right there in front of you. You know, some some of our favorite acts. But yeah, it is tiring. It gets boring. But yes, it, you're very refreshing. And now you need to hook us up with some of those bands, man. For sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email you a list. Ah, uh, Sean. <laughs> send it to Sean. That's his job. <laughs> hey, hey, that's a, that's a good point. Dandy, for for our new listeners, uh, how would you describe the Fizzfuzz, your own band, to them? And um, true, true. Where where would they go to? Where would they go to find your music? Where would they go to best find your music yeah. that that helps you to get paid and promote your band and um, yeah. promote your shows that are coming we're, up? And we're, we're we're just a rock and roll outfit. You know, we're not uh, we're not trying to break the mold. We're not trying to you know really. Um, uh, I don't know if I'd say we're not trying to break the mold. I, I think we are unique in uh, the way that Don and I sing together. Uh, Absolutely. One of the most fantastic uh, uh, combinations I've ever been involved with, you know, where I just feel like someone someone that I'm working with is, is right there with me, and I just know she's going to be there with me, and it's going to sound right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we play rock. And uh, certainly, if anybody wants to, to check out what we're doing, we have a, a label called Taxi Driver um, over in Italy, uh, out of Genova. And um, we have a label called Slush Fund here in the States, out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, certainly, our records are available there. And our, our next record will be available at both of those places, too. But that's probably not going to be until late next spring. Well, I'm going to go out here and read a little excerpt from uh, your first review. Uh, let's see here, by Sandra Owens, okay? I won't say how many stars until I'm finished reading. She gave you uh, a certain amount of stars out of five. Uh, but let's see. Let's see what she says here. I do not believe that this book will be enjoyable for everyone. It is far too controversial to find its way to mass appeal. There is an important message in the novel, though that will definitely strike home for a lot of people in that part of the u.s that sounds so <laughs> detrimental she gave you five stars <laughs> <laughs> well i think uh i think that um she was probably telling it as it is because uh i i don't think that um i don't know how broad the appeal will be of the book mm. you know it, it is harsh it is not uh there are no there are no punches pulled in no, that book not at all and i I think that a lot of people from, you know, my old digs from where I grew up could reasonably be offended um, by some of the things that are in that book because 
they still occur there. And mm-hmm. um, um, people are still using language that and and attitudes that are certainly you would think would be antiquated by 2021. But mm-hmm. I can tell you, we were just there last yeah. summer. And, you know, if I heard uh, if I heard some people using the N word once, I heard it a dozen times. And if I heard misogynistic and homophobic statements once, I heard it a dozen times. Yes. Now, you know, you're there visiting for a week. Do you want to get in fistfights with people over, you know, over this people that are that are your, you know, maybe some people that you graduated from high school or people that you knew from the clubs? Well, that's a tough situation to put yourself in, you know, and and, you know, did. Dawn and I do the eye roll. Did we walk away from those those things? Of course we did. Of course. Uh, but do I want to throw down, you know, and and let this fly over them? Most certainly, you know, I don't. Right. Um, um, I've written a book uh, to represent my fist flying. <laughs> no, it's it's actually stronger. It will reach more people than the bouncer that threw you out of that club. Uh, right. In my experience. Right. So, but yes. So yeah, I think that review is a hundred percent accurate. You know, it is not going to be accessible to everyone. Um, it is not written in a a style that is super contemporary. I think that my style is a little bit based around many of my heroes. You know, I grew up reading those folks from. Uh, you know, one of my favorite heroes. Is the is the expat uh, um, era, you know, from the, and the Harlem Renaissance era, and um, you know, nineteen, let's say nineteen ten to nineteen forty, you know, that's where a great majority of my influences came from, and I think that a lot of that had an effect on me, and mm-hmm. uh, comes out in my style in the book, my style of writing. It does. So again, you know, there are going to be people, and as I said to Sean earlier, there's going to be people that are going to like it. And there's going to be people that are there's going to be people that are not going to like it at all, and <clears throat> hey, you know I feel successful. I wrote a book uh, 30 years ago. I came back, I reconstructed it, um, I got it published. Some people were saying some nice things about it, and I have a legacy to leave for my children. Boom. And now you tell folks where to find it. Where do you find Carnival Songs? Yeah, I have a UK publisher. Uh, it's Golden Storyline Publishers um, out of the UK. Um, for right now, um, it is only on digital, uh, Kindle, in the United States. Um, uh, I believe by the beginning of next year, it should be in paperback, but only in the UK. Now, uh, the folks at Golden Storyline are fantastic. They're way behind the book. They really believe in it. Uh, they are not uh, Simon and Schuster, though, um, and uh, they uh, they don't have the resources certainly to uh, put out physical copies all over the planet. Uh, but you know, I imagine in time, depending on how well it does, perhaps we'll start with just some physical copies copies in the UK, and then if enough people buy it, then perhaps we'll see some physical copies here in the United States. I um, certainly get enough requests for people saying, "Hey, if I buy it, will you sign it?" Uh, I know they can make their money back. <laughs> I would just have a lot of postage. This book but, is, uh, I'm sorry, man. This was dark roast, bold print, man. I, I got to say it's very moving. And uh, I, every time I flipped the page, I was like, oh boy, should I be reading this? Yes, I should. And, um, <laughs> and thank you so much. Uh, are you on Twitter? Cause I know Fis- the FISFA is not so much on Twitter, not real yeah. active. I'm not that active either, but I'm getting more. 
Yeah, you know, we have really, quite honestly, rolled back our involvement on social media. Uh, uh, Dawn um, actually has taken a real long hiatus from it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, taking a bit of a hiatus from it is not such a bad thing. I agree. Um, I still get, you know, I still want to post pictures of the love of my life, uh, (laughs) uh, Dawn Brown, on my social media page, and that ends up being the majority of what I put up there is when we'll go to the lake or, or uh, I take a picture of her painting uh, or something like that, you know, I want to scream at the top of my lungs about how much I'm in love with her. Um, but uh, certainly taking a break from social media, we're not as active on social media as we have been in the past. Um, and I, I think that's maybe not such a bad thing. You know, living in the analog is not such a terrible thing. Not at all. Sean, what you got, man, in closing? I happen to agree with that. I I don't operate too much on social media myself either. I mean, I, I have a Facebook account. I have an Instagram account, but I really don't do anything on there. So he pretty, pretty much like leaves me hanging out to dry all the time. You know? <laughs> Let's just get it out there right now, Sean. All right. Hey, guys, this was great. And thank you so much for doing this. Stephen Brown, not Sean Brown. That's the other guy. Um, And Captain Sexy. But okay. And Dandy Brown, uh, your music is out there still as Dandy Brown also? It is. I got a a couple of solo records out there, but, you know, um, uh, no plans to do another solo record. I'm I'm 100% 100 locked in with my wife and the things that we're doing. Okay. To me, it's just killer. Hell yeah, <laughs> man! Well, let's go out with a song. What do, what do you got? What, what what's your request? Uh, how about um, how about we how about we go with some Hermano? Uh, haven't heard that played around. How about uh, um, uh, Manager Special? That's a great way to close the show. Captain Sexy, how do you feel about that? I think that's perfect. <laughs> All right, hey, folks, friends, and fiends, thanks for listening, and uh, dude. Check out Carnival songs, man. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. And, and thank you so much. And we'll, we'll have you back on, man, uh, for uh, book two, even though there's a book two within the book, but we won't get into that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. And again, you know, kudos for getting on iHeartRadio. Right. And you guys have been doing such a quality show. I've been listening for, for a few years now. Oh, God, I'm I, so sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't talk about the Morgan Stern episode. <laughs> we we love them, but uh, yeah, somebody had too much fun there that night. Uh, great band, though. What a great time, actually. All right, uh, thanks for listening, folks, friends, and fiends, and tune in. I guess go to iHeartRadio. You'll find us there. Give us a like on Facebook. It helps, I guess, until that goes away. I guess. Uh, Twitter <laughs> at Fairly Dark. All my stuff, dude. Buy some. You want some horror fiction? Go with uh, Kettle Whistle Radio. Ah, no, no, no. Let's go with www.fairlydarkproductions.com. All the Kettle Whistle Radio episodes are there, and you can get some books, some comic books at, at burningbowlpublishing.com. Dr. Peeler, number two, coming up. And if you're nearby Pittsburgh, go to the Willow Station on October 30th in the afternoon. We're doing a show there. There's going to be a lot of horror stuff, nostalgia, stuff for sale, books, comics, and of course, my God, Robert J. Uh, Hoagland. You got to check out his artwork. I can't explain it. Just come see us at the Willow Station in Castle Shannon, October 30th. And um, October 26th, I should say, October 26th, Heather Taddy's doing a uh, talking event up in Newcastle. 
Um, oh gosh, it's called the 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 view, the view house. Sean, help me out there. What was that one called? Uh, I'm actually not familiar with the that. The View House Manor, I believe. But yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, check us out, man. We'll give you an update on that one as soon as we know more. <laughs> and Dandy Brown, Stephen Brown, thank you so much for coming on to Kettle Whistle Radio, and we hope to have you back. Thank you, guys. All right. Good night. So long.
Society 13, Redefining Podcasting. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's his dad? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In. 
the Spanish remixes out now on Electric Hath Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electric Acid.